Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. on the philosophy of history, German philosopher George Willem Frederick Hegel wrote, What experience in history teaches is this, that nations and governments have never learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with The Economist magazine's most experienced foreign correspondent, John Andrews, and unpack the complex nature of war, as teased out in his superb new book, The World in Conflict, Understanding the World's Trouble Spots, published by Profile Books. So why is global conflict ever present in our lives? What is the role of religion in conflict dynamics? And where will the next violent conflict erupt? What are the contexts? Who are the participants? And what are the likely impacts and outcomes? In his latest book, The World in Conflict, John Andrews writes, The word conflict can be applied to everything from a playground squabble to the Second World War. For this book, it means a difference of opinion between nations, peoples or political movements that involves the use of deadly violence. Conflicts can have many often overlapping causes, which makes it difficult to catalogue them by categories such as religion, race, territory, resources or ideology. As wars between states almost disappear, civil wars and insurgencies, many with an Islamist flavour, are taking their place and so mocking our recent fantasies of universal peace and the triumph of democracy. So should we therefore surrender to a fatalistic gloom? This guide to the world's conflicts may well bring to mind the view of Mahatma Gandhi. What difference does it make to the dead, the orphans and the homeless, whether the mad destruction is wrought under the name of totalitarianism or in the holy name of liberty or democracy? My name is John Andrews and I'm a journalist and author and um, I've worked as a journalist around the world for too many decades being based in Asia, in the United States, and in Europe, and in particular in the Middle East. And my new book is called The World in Conflict, Understanding the World's Trouble Spots. John, really well done on the book. It's a fascinating read, if a little disturbing in parts. I might throw a bit of philosophy at you, and sure, we'll see where it takes us. A little bit of Cicero. Do you agree with this statement? An unjust peace is better than a just war. Well, in a sense, yes, because... War causes casualties. It causes grief at every level. Ultimately, of course, it causes death. And I think most people basically prefer to live in security and safety, to have a way way of making their, their own living. And that's regardless of whether they're being ruled by nice democratic Jeffersonian governments or by dictators. So, you know, peace basically is better than war. There obviously can be exceptions, and I would think that, um, you know, the Second World War in many ways would be defined as a just war because you cannot condone genocide. And the same, of course, in Rwanda, again, genocide, or the same in Cambodia with, with Pol Pot. In those circumstances, I think, you know, war must take precedence because, you know, you need to solve those problems. 
But for an awful lot of humanity, I suspect that an unjust peace is probably their preferred option. Do you think man has an innate capacity for war and for violence? Because reading through some of the stats and figures that you present in the book, it's unrelenting. Well, I think when you asked that question, um, you met mankind. Now, my wife, I think, would say man rather than mankind. I think, you know, the, the male species really is, does have a propensity towards violence. I mean, plenty of women do as well. But, I mean, war has historically, and I think even today, it's very much a male thing. But we fight about all sorts of issues over women, for example, at one basis in classical history, but over territory, over resources, over identity, over religion. All these factors tend to, to blend into, in together. But yes, we are, by nature, I think, inclined to aggression, to violence. But does war ever solve anything? That's terribly difficult to answer. I think you could say that the Second World War did solve something. It defeated fascism. And that was an incredibly important achievement. Uh, If you go back to the First World War, though, I think you can argue that it didn't really solve anything at all. It defeated German expansionism, but it actually laid the ground for the Second World War, principally because of the reparations that came in with the Treaty of Versailles. And you could also argue that it was the First World War that laid the foundations for so much of the conflict in the Middle East, because uh, you had these sort of contradictory promises made, especially by the British, to the Arabs to have uh, you know, an Arab kingdom free of colonization and to the Jews to have a Jewish state. Now, one of the uh, researchers that you, you reference in the book is Joshua Goldstein, who's an American political scientist, and he has used um, Oslo's Peace Research Institute to develop data on where we are today in terms of whether we're losing more lives or whether that things are getting somewhat better. And he presents quite an optimistic picture. I mean, it's absolutely true that, that uh, as, as he and also Stephen Pinker pointed out, that the number of, of deaths from conflict, from war, uh, has declined over the past century. But now it's ticking up again. And the tick up basically comes from the Iraq war, the rise of ISIS, and the Syrian war in particular. One of the things that has changed in warfare is that whereas you used to have wars between states, that very rarely happens anymore. Now you have civil wars, wars within states, or you have insurrections which cross over um, national frontiers. Now, I did a bit of homework on this over the weekend. We had 101,000 battle deaths in 2014. This comes from Uppsala battle death data. 54,000 came from Syria, 13,000 came from Iraq. And then both Afghanistan and Pakistan had 12,000 respectively. And Nigeria and the Ukraine had 5,000 respectively. To me, they're very large numbers. They are large and they've become larger because if you go back before, really, before the Islamic State, the deaths from from conflict were roughly 55,000 a year, so uh, or thereabouts. I mean, it's, you know, the figures, it's hard to be really precise about these figures. I mean, you know, that lovely quote about lies and statistics, it's, it's true. You know, how do you really define? And if someone gets injured in battle, he may or may not die later. Now, if he does die later, do you call him a death from war? You'd say yes. On the other hand, you may not know about it. So, you know, there's a certain fluidity about the numbers. But the essential message is that deaths from conflict did go down and now they're going up again. And you're right, it's pretty nasty. 
But it depends also how you interpret the data and also the kind of related social and economic issues that come out of war. So, for example, trafficking of people, those injured young children, um, the smuggling that happens with war and some of the other very, very dirty stuff. So while we may not have massive deaths and loss and casualties that we had in World War One and World War Two, there are very nasty, dirty, messy stuff as a result of war that are happening oh, that cannot absolutely. be ignored. Especially, uh, the, the, for example, the, the phenomenon of child soldiers, uh, especially in Africa. I mean, that really is horrendous, where people like the Lord's Resistance Army will simply raid a village take all the young boys out and and make them into soldiers. Imagine the psychological harm that that does to, you know, some six-year-old kid who then is taught how to fire and spends the next five or six years or ten years killing, raping. This is just awful, really horrendous. One thing that we ought to bear in mind is that although there's a tendency to think of, of wars as, you know, between armies or guerrilla groups or whatever, If you look at the death toll from the drug cartels in Latin America, that is actually at the same level as what was happening in the Afghanistan war. As a parent, I know that you have um, have two grandchildren. How do you look at all of this and what questions have you asked yourself when you were compiling the book? Because presumably having had children and having grandchildren, that changes how you look at these facts because you're looking at the future for your children and grandchildren and whether things have changed or not. Indeed, I say you raise that because I've dedicated the book to my grandchildren. And um, let me just look it up. What did I actually say? I said for Mika and Sam, in the vain hope that they will grow up in a world without conflict. I mean, it is a vain hope. Now, my grandkids are, you know, Mika is 16 and Sam is 13. Now, I do hope that they never have to uh, fight in a war. But, you know, the, the chances are that they will certainly be affected in some way by war because they live in New York. And uh, America will continue to be the world superpower, I think, for certainly for most of their lifetime, if not beyond their lifetimes. And when you are a superpower, that also means that you have military capability and, in a sense, the responsibility to exercise that military capability in some circumstances. Now, you know, America is not fighting a war on its own territory, but it has been involved and is involved in so many conflicts around the world. There'll be plenty of people who say that the involvement of the United States is a bad thing and always goes wrong. Uh, There are plenty of people who say, no, no, it's a good thing. Whichever view you take, the fact of the matter is that the United States, as a great power, is involved. So automatically will be America's allies in NATO. And now, of course, you have the phenomenon of Russia coming out of the, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union, also exercising its military muscles. And so we have this, this thing where we are never, I think, going to be at peace. And we are always going to have war somewhere. The goal of the international multilateral organizations, such as the United Nations, should be to try to minimize the number of occasions which do actually lead to conflict. But the big problem there is the Security Council and who has the presiding votes. Could it be argued that most wars end without military victory for either side? Because if we look at, let's say, in our recent past, we look at ETA, conflict in the Basque area. If we look at Northern Ireland, that uh, ceasefires are really what's happening and that we don't have any victors like we used to have hundreds of years ago. 
I think, uh, generally speaking, that's correct. I mean, there are exceptions. I think Russia clearly won in Georgia in 2008. But the idea of, of surrender, uh, you know, as you have from Japan or Germany in the Second World War, uh, that basically doesn't seem to happen anymore. Uh, you get a negotiated peace in which, of course, one side may gain rather more than the other, depending on the individual circumstances. Uh, but one reason that you know, you're not getting this sort of phenomenon of outright military victory is that you don't have now so many states fighting other states. And so it's really solving civil wars. That can be a successful business, or it can be rather messy. I think if you look at the Sudan, I mean, Sudan successfully split after many years of civil war into Sudan and South Sudan. But of course, South Sudan now is itself embroiled in civil war. And in fact, Sudan, having lost part of its territory to South Sudan, it still, of course, has a problem with Darfur. And so you get this messy uh, situation in which there's no clear-cut victor, no clear-cut vanquished. And it's really a question of the balance of power, a balance of advantage. And also a question of truth. What do you make of Gaza and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Do you think there will ever be a lasting peace, sir? Well, Abba Eban used to say, only peace is inevitable. But he said that decades ago. I mean, by my background is as an Arabist. And I visited, uh, I used to live in the Arab world, and I've also visited Israel. And Gaza, ultimately, is an unsustainable situation because you've got you know, sort of a million people virtually cooped up in what is effectively a prison camp. Uh, now, something will have to give. Quite how, I, it's very, very difficult to see. Because if you were an Israeli, or an, particularly if you were an Israeli politician, you would see no urgency in getting towards the two-state solution, which has always been seen as the, the obvious remedy to the Arab-Israeli situation. You'd, see, you'd look around you and say, well, you know, the Middle East, the Arab world in general is in total turmoil. There is no point in us, us as Israelis offering something because it may redound against us. Contrary view, the, the Palestinians would argue that their issue, the, the Arab-Israeli issue, is the mother of all the problems in the Middle East. And I think, in a sense, that's true. The problem is that um, you know, mothers can get forgotten. And I think now you've got uh, you know, the, the, the struggle between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. You've got the, the struggle between um, the Islamic State and the governments of the region. And uh, to them, suddenly the Arab-Israeli conflict has become a sideshow. It doesn't need urgent solution. Now, the world in conflict cites some tremendous historians, psychologists, political theorists, and one of them is Steven Pinker. What do you think he has offered our understanding of conflict and violence? I mean, you know, with Better Angels, his book under that lovely title, I think he did make a very uh, serious point. We have become less violent as the human race, and he um, gives several reasons for that. But it is a remarkable achievement because, I mean, the world population is now 7.2 billion, I suppose it is. Uh, so it's doubled in a relatively short period of time. And yet the scale of deaths from warfare, from conflict, has gone down. Now, he gives several reasons from a personal point of view. I think probably the greatest reason is globalization. When you have a common interest in 
trade links and economic prosperity and so on, there is less incentive to disturb those links by actually going to war. You have a vested interest in making sure that the country you're dealing with is more or less at peace, is a, is a friend rather than a foe. So I think that's one big reason. The second reason, more practically in a sense, is that battlefield medicine has improved. I mean, you know, the relatively few casualties, in a way, from the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war, because battlefield medicine has improved so much. I mean, all those poor people who are, you know, walking around on prosthetic legs, well, a century ago or even back to the Second World War, they would be dead. So that's another instance where things have happened. Of course, the role also of mediation, the United Nations, the OSCE, NATO, um, the European Union, they've all had a role in promoting peace. I mean, they, we tend to scorn uh, the European Union for being awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize in, what was it, 2012. But actually, there is a lot of sense in that. It's now inconceivable that France and Germany will go to war with each other. And yet, before the European Union existed, France and Germany had been at war, very damaging, bloodthirsty wars, three times within a century. But if you read the newspapers, you watch TV, radio and so on, the media have presented this very ghastly picture of the world, which is justified in certain trouble spots in the world. But almost it's very easy to think that things are slipping out of control. Yes. I mean, I like to think of this as the CNN effect. You know, when you have TV cameras, they show violence, they show death, they show poverty, destruction and so on. They have an impact on viewers. And that impact can be very positive in, in demanding an early end to a conflict. It can also be perversely rather counterproductive. If you take, for example, the intervention in Libya, that was really forced upon European powers with uh, America famously leading from behind because of the thought that uh, TV cameras were going to show the massacre of hundreds of thousands of people in Cyrenaica by Gaddafi's forces. So suddenly you had an intervention. Walter Cronkite famously, uh, when he went to Vietnam and saw how the reality that all these claims that, the, that General Westmoreland and the other Americans, American generals were making of their success in the fight against Viet Cong, when uh, Cronkite gave a reality check, uh, Lyndon Johnson famously said, well, if I've lost Cronkite, I've, I've lost America. And that was actually the beginning of the end of the Vietnam War. Because the irony now is that uh, Vietnam is very pro-American. And uh, you, you get a real sort of, uh, not quite an alliance, but genuine friendship, I think, between the United States and uh, the still communist regime of Vietnam. History can be very unpredictable at times, can't it? I'm just wondering, within all of that, do you think we've become collectively numb in the West on violence and these grotesque human rights violations. Like when we look at places, trouble spots like Honduras, parts of Colombia, parts of Brazil and the narco culture there, that we have seen so much in our TVs, movies have been made about the violence, there's been almost video games and so on, that we almost kind of just accept it all now or we just get on with it and that we've, we maybe lost the, the power to be shocked in some way. I think that's, uh, Susan, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I referred to the CNN effect because the CNN effect can be paradoxical. You get to a point where you've seen so much that you, you turn off, you don't want to see anymore. Mm. You have compassion fatigue. 
it's often called. You know, you, you see so, you know, yet another famine, yet another disaster. Oh, I'll switch on to uh, X Factor or something. You know, that, that is, a, is a real problem. Yes, conflicts can be ignored. Mm. Uh, for example, not so long ago, you had a real hunt for the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, mm. that group of um, very nasty people coming out of Uganda. And that was actually led by social media to start with. But it, that's, nobody talks about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Kony has still not been found. Lord's Resistance Army still exists. It's still causing nasty uh, things in, in Central Africa, around the whole uh, Uganda, Rwanda, Central African Republic area. And, um, and yet it, you no longer see anything of that on our television screens and almost nothing in the press, in the newspapers. It's funny when you say that, I'm just thinking of Nigeria and you just wonder where have all those beautiful young women gone? Those lovely children, it's fallen off the media spotlight. Bring back our girls. Well, that was a great slogan. You had Michelle Obama chanting it and so on. And now it's no longer on on the radar. Could it be argued that it's where the aid agencies go, where the UN focuses in on or not, that that's where we worry about and that... There are loads of places in the world, there's loads of trouble spots or conflict zones that, for one reason or another, that aren't um, making the press. Yes, I, I think one can. And uh, I mean, sometimes that's simply because it is physically almost impossible to get there. If you take, for example, China's problems with its Uyghur Muslim minority in Xinjiang, I mean, that's very difficult for journalists to cover. Now, there isn't open warfare there. But there are terrorist groups. I'm using terrorist with, with inverted commas because, you know, as I point out in the book, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and, and vice versa. But, I mean, there is unrest in the Uyghur region, the same in Tibet. And yet it's almost impossible for the press to cover it because of Chinese control of the territory and of the media. The same could be said for North Korea, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And have, did you ever visit North Korea? No, I've been to uh, South Korea, but I've never made it into North Korea, and I would love to go. But uh, I think the chances of, uh, of getting in are yeah. pretty slim. I mean, it does happen. You, there are very occasional tour groups. I was in Seoul just, uh, just over a year ago, and um, it was interesting seeing the South Korean reaction to the North. I mean, it's something which overshadows their whole politics. And at the same time, it, it, it also coincides with a degree of, uh, it's not quite anti-Americanism, but antipathy to America. And I think, in a sense, that goes with the, uh, with the problem of being a superpower. I mean, when Britain was a superpower, I think we probably had the same uh, antagonism towards us as the United States has now. And that, of course, carries on a little bit. I mean, you know, for example, when the Irish rugby team plays the English rugby team, there's a sort of a, a tribal conflict there, as, I mean, which I think is the wonderful thing about sport, and I love sport, is that it is a substitute for war. It's a much more sensible way of um, affirming one's identity and so on, rather than actually having violence. Friendly warfare, if you will. Absolutely. Can I ask you about psychological warfare? You bring up um, some ghastly stuff on ISIS and you write about sound recorders, video editors and computer technicians 
crafting together very sophisticated video now hand in heart I have not seen this video uploaded onto the likes of YouTube and so on I have refused point blank to ever ever look or participate in any way connected with that but it changes the playing field entirely doesn't it it does I admire you for for not having watched any of these videos I mean I felt I had to watch them just to, to research the book and they are really ghastly, so gruesome, but they are brilliantly produced. I mean, you're talking about sort of Hollywood-level techniques. They are fantastically well-produced, and they have a real effect on impressionable young minds in particular, not just in the Arab world, but in the West as well. And you see this in the number of recruits that have gone from Europe to join ISIS in, in Syria and, and in Iraq, particularly in Syria. And young people are always going to make mistakes, but it is frightening how seductive they have found the message of the Islamic State. And before the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was not nearly as sophisticated in its use of social media and uh, videos and so on as, as ISIS. I mean, ISIS is really professional standard television. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And it's just awful. 